Our special music today is We Shall Shine as the Stars. This, take me back, this takes me back a few years. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. There were two evangelists a few decades ago that were going all over the place in northern, in northwest United States, preaching and singing. And one of their favorite songs, they sang duets together at their evangelistic services. And one of their songs they sang was We Shall Shine as the Stars. Those two evangelists were my uncles. And it brings tears to my heart this morning, as in my distant memory I can hear them singing. We may tarry a while as strangers, unnoticed by those who pass by, but the Savior will crown us in glory to shine as the stars of the sky. We may never be rich in earth's treasures, nor rise on the ladder of fame, but the saints will at last be rewarded, made rich in Emmanuel's name. We may live in a tent or a cottage and die in seclusion alone, but the Father who seeth in secret remembers each one of his own. We shall shine as the stars of the morning with Jesus, the crucified one. We shall shine to be like him forever, eternally shine as the sun. Well, good morning to everybody. Um, 
We had planned to have a retreat here at the beach, at over here, not the beach, but over here on the coast. And um, towards the end, we didn't get much response, at least that I could tell. And we've got more response here today than I knew we had. What it convinces me of is that we need to do this. I think that uh, what I've done recently is I've talked to Don Martin, one of the members over at, um, at Willits, and asked him if he could prepare a request for maybe four times during the year, different kind of outings that we can ha- share together. Some of you from Fort Bragg might like to join with those in Covalo and Willits and go to various different places and maybe come in over here. We do this occasionally, come over here uh, from Willits and so it's a good feeling, at least for me it is, to be able to see various ones here in the church from various places. That's really nice. And I'm going to take the liberty of thinking that maybe I might be able to get away with um, uh, uh, Kobolo's indulgence here because what I'm going to say is what I said in church last week at Kobolo. So I was such a good sermon, I want to give it again. So um, I know you'll love it. <laughs> uh, I'm really convinced that, um, that in my life, and I think from what I see in all of our lives, um, God wants us to be far more loving. And we have so much to learn in how to love. Um, it's difficult for us. It's a total change of everything in our thinking, everything in our behavior, everything in our attitudes. And um, we all know that in the last days before God comes back, his people will have achieved a level of loving that will be remarkable. And, and that's, I think, what most people look for. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit is ready to set on fire, loving, loving people. And so that's the reason why I have chosen in my first sermons in all the churches to talk about to talk about love. And we have not been able to get this thing to project here. So I'm going to just talk as though you don't need to see it, okay? Um, well, I guess that's the best way to do it here. One of the things that I've been doing over the last several weeks in preaching this series is... Um, exploring what we have been told or discovered about love in the area of science. Because it teaches us some amazing things. When God says that his church would be known as loving people and that we are to love even as we have been loved, you know, when we see and hear words like that, these are clear instructions. But I don't know that it gets down to us really what that is all about until we investigate it a little bit clearer. And that's what I wanted to do in this series. And I've talked about, up until now, other churches, or excuse me, other um, methods of uh, raising children which basically focused on the external, the outside. Today, we want to go on the inside. Because those methods, which were the methods that I was raised by, did not create loving people. And yet we we were convinced in that generation that I grew up in, we were convinced that we had a huge responsibility in forming character. 
and that that was probably the most important thing. But we didn't know how to do it from the inside out. At least I didn't, and the parents that I had didn't. And so most of the kind of training that I got was from outside in rather than inside out. And today I think we have some information that's much more helpful. And it starts with monkeys. A number of years ago there was some experiments that were quite profound. And they were done by Harry and Margaret Harlow on monkeys. Most of you, if you've been in psychology classes or sociology classes, are familiar with the Harlow's monkeys. And in this research that the Harlow's did, they completely turned 50 years of ideas about how to raise children upside down. They flipped it completely over. Because those years, previous 50 years, were based upon behavioralism about you need to basically pay no attention at all about what's going on on the inside. You just fix the outside. In fact, there was no interest at all about the inside. And then Harlow's began to do their amazing experiments on monkeys, and it changed completely the idea of how we relate to one another. And it's pretty profound. And I want to tell you the story of um, what happened. The Harlows, quite by accident, found out that baby monkeys that were removed from their mothers at birth, even though these monkeys were provided with all the necessities of life, food, water, warmth, etc., they had all of that taken care of, yet they had no contact with the mother or other monkeys. They were isolated. When finally placed with other monkeys six months later, these monkeys had a whole list of severe disturbances. And here they are, compulsive biting, avoidance of other monkeys. They seemed unable to communicate with other monkeys or learn from each other. They just, many of them just sat there, and you maybe have seen behaviors like this, just kind of a rocking motion. They didn't have that before in monkeys that were raised with mothers. They didn't have the biting. They didn't have this inability to communicate uh, with one another. Uh, They had no interest in mating. If artificially mated, they didn't know what to do with the offspring. They were totally lost. The best their children, at best their offspring were ignored. At worst, they tried to kill their offspring. They also noticed other behaviors. Monkeys that were separated 6 to 12 hours after birth formed attachment to the gauze on the bottom of the cage. This was to catch all the debris. But that was the closest thing to a feel of something like a human being that they could find in this wire metal cage. And they were attached to it. And when the workers took that out to clean the cage, these monkeys went into hysterics. That was like stealing away the most beloved thing in their life. Monkeys raised in a bear cage on a bare floor had difficulty surviving, even living, for the first five days. Just five days. When the mesh cone was inserted in the cage... Uh, those negative effects lessened. In other words, what the Harlows discovered is is that monkeys, 
need to have something that appears like a mother in their life. Some kind of a caring source. Even if it was a wire covered with mesh of some sort. That made them a little bit feeling more comfortable and more uh, at ease. Uh, When the cone was covered with a terry cloth, they became happy monkeys. Now, after 50 years of behavioralism saying you don't pay any attention to what goes on on the inside, the Harlow's monkeys are telling us something very, very different. It was a startling discovery in the area of science. It seemed as though the monkeys didn't agree with the behavioralists that you really did need to have someone caring for you. Surrogate mothers. Now, the surrogate mother was not a live monkey. It was a mesh of wire covered with some kind of a cloth or a wooden shape of some sort covered with a cloth. And when the babies had, the baby monkeys had that in the cage with them, and these, and they somehow were able to attach a nipple to that surrogate uh, that could give them milk, the babies, of course, felt much better and they would cling to that surrogate. No matter which one had the nipple, listen to this, the baby spent 24 hours a day with the terry cloth. It was a sense of touch, the sense of contact that made the difference. Left alone with a wire monkey, the babies were insecure, and you would find them cowering in the corner of the cage. Left alone with a terry cloth mother, after a few hugs, they were secure enough to explore on their own. One of the things that I'll tell you more about in a second, but I'll tell you right now, is is an attachment theory yet to be discovered after this, teaches us that when children have the ability to connect with their mother, when they have the opportunity to connect and they feel secure that they are loved and there's a home, there's a safe place for them, When they know that, then that enables them to go out and explore. And they come back to check in to make sure that it's still there, it's still safe, and then they go out and explore more. And that's a sign of healthy development, of healthy security. When they don't have that, they either cling tenaciously to the mother as though they're unsure if that mother's going to be there the next time, that she's somehow going to disappear, or they're afraid to get near the mother for fear that they'll be pushed away, abandoned, disregarded. Boy, you see those kind of behaviors, don't you, today with children. Um, Touch, not food, binds infants to caregivers. Things are not as important as mother. As time went on, psychologists continued to discover interesting data. And in this data, now we switch from monkeys to human beings. And they absorbed, observed some abnormal behaviors among children. This was appearing somewhere in the end of the 30s and early part of the 1940s. 
And these were the abnormal behaviors that they began to experience or observe. Who, children expressing no concern or feelings for anyone but themselves. Some were withdrawn and isolated. Others were overactive and abusive. By adolescence, they had histories of stealing, violence, and sexual misdemeanors. And these were kind of strange behaviors. They hadn't observed this before, and they were taking note. What is causing this to happen? Many raised in institutions with adequate physical care, but they had little uh, social interaction. They observed that. Others shifted between foster homes for most of their lives. Uh, Then they began to look at orphanages. And they noticed that children in orphanages, just put this data in your head and it'll come together here, were listless, depressed, mentally stunted, and they had blank stares on their faces. Something was wrong with these kids. Something was seriously wrong with them. These children in the orphanage had lost all interest in life And they were possessed with feelings of emptiness. They were getting all the food they need, clean sheets, beds. They had all the warmth, everything, but they simply didn't have what? Now, I think that there were some people there that loved them, but they didn't have the opportunity to feel that love on a personal basis. So, 30 children for one caregiver. They were confined to their cribs, and these children, many of them, became soon incapable of walking or even crawling. They had all that they need except the expression, personal experience of being loved. That was what was missing, the one ingredient. They would be repeatedly rocking, we've already talked about that, even banging their heads, hand flappings about, tended not to develop normal social uh, emotional attachment. What was causing this? Well, after that, you have the research on attachment that I mentioned that was done by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And these two began to study uh, children in depth, and they began to study how infants responded to their mother's emotional availability. And out of those studies became one of the most uh, profound theories, solid theories in the uh, social psychology world that has ever been developed, attachment theory. There are a huge amount of studies that have springboarded out of that. And this is basically attachment theory. Attachment theory happens when the child knows that they can count on the mother being there. What did Jesus said? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whenever you call, I will be there to answer. He's always hearing what we have to say. He became flesh with us so that we would have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary who would understand us. These are the ingredients necessary for attachment to take place. Jesus himself modeled it. When the child knows that they can count on the mother or the parent, that she's always going to be available, she's always going to be sensitive, she's always going to be perceptive to the child's feelings and the needs, 
then attachment happens. The mother and the child are attached. And that enables the child now to feel free to explore their world. They don't have to worry about whether it's safe. Mother has already made it safe. They don't have to worry about attacks that are coming at them. Mother has assured them that they're okay, that everything is okay. So essential, just like in Christianity. We don't need to worry about all the attacks that come our way. We know that we have a Savior that is taken care of. Mothers do the very same thing as what Jesus does. Parents do the very same thing, not just mothers. When that happens, the child is free to explore. Stay with me carefully on these things. That frees the child to explore. The child now can explore their world, develop all their potentiality. If it doesn't happen this way, the child becomes enmeshed and mired into the problems of the parent and the problems of the world around them. They become engulfed. Long time patterns as a result of lack of attachment, which is a lack of love. So when you have a lack of love, you got serious problems that now take place, long-term problems. Just a lack of love. So one of the interesting sciences that have come up in the recent years is the science of resilience. What makes it possible for a child or anybody to bounce back from hardship, from being having their feet knocked out from under them? Some people can stand up and move forward as though they have the ability just to bounce back. Others are so traumatized by the trauma that they can't move forward. They're locked. They're stuck. And so now we have a psychological field of science called resilience. It comes right out of attachment. When a child simply has been assured that all is well by those contacts with the parent, they have the that teaches them that they don't have to be anxious, they don't have to be alarmed, they can have peace and they can go forward. It took me 20 years to overcome the damages that I felt as a child by the lack of attachment. During those 20 years, I was draining off of other people rather than giving. Other people existed to help me to survive, to give me resilience. Once you get recovered, then you can give it away. Do you see what I'm saying? And so love is, it is basically, it is the power to live a Christian life. And you get it by being loved by someone else. Feeling confident and assurance that Jesus loves you or that a church family loves you or that your parent loves you, whatever it may be, or that some friend loves you. We need that in order for having these changes to take place in our life. Impulses. Children today are severely affected by the inability to manage their impulses. We see it in all kinds of things, ADHD, all kinds of things like that, uh, autism, different things like that that show up. Their inability to manage their emotions. And so when you have attachment, that contributes greatly 
to a child's ability to manage their impulses. Do you see what I'm saying? Just the simple, simple thing of loving one another. If we want to go out and and change people's lives, we have to think seriously that the first thing you have to do, we have to become better at loving. And when we become better at loving, all of a sudden, all the defensiveness that people have just kind of melts away because they know that we're safe, that we're not going to hurt, we're not going to attack, we're not going to put our burdens upon them, we're not going to fill them up with our anxieties, that we're just there for them, and that then they can just let all that stuff go and be filled. Uh, very, very important. Uh, when you have attachment, you now, interestingly enough, begin to hear coherent stories. In the children of parents who are securely attached to their children, they're always there. They always have the assurance. They always give assurance. They don't coddle the child. They just love the child. They reassure the child. They care for the child. That child knows that they're not going to be held onto against their wishes. But they're also not going to ever be abandoned. That they always know where it's, where it's safe. So when you have that, by the way, interesting when we do evangelism, that's something to think about. Attachment theory with evangelism. Attachment theory is just basically biblical truth. Is what it's all about. That now children start having coherent stories. If they don't, if they're not securely attached, the stories that they tell almost about anything are terribly disjointed and they have a hard time. There's no string that connects it all together. You really have to strain to understand what they're saying. Sometimes when you're sitting and talking to people, you notice. I'm really having a hard time following what this person is saying. It's basically a result of the fact of the chaotic nature of their upbringing. And it didn't get mapped correctly, and so they can't pull the stuff out in a coherent way. Attachment gives peace to the child, enables them to lay down step by step the story of their life. And so they're able to move forward. When you have attachment, you are able to feel trust and able to enjoy intimacy and affection. When you aren't attached, you're always afraid to give yourself away to someone for fear that they're going to abandon you, won't be there for you, or they're going to take over your life and control you. So, You see, these are qualities that are absolutely essential in Christianity and they're controlled by love. Whether or not we are able to love or able to be loved when we are growing up. Really important. Um, You are free, if you are attached, to have a positive and hopeful belief systems, to be free, to be independent, to enjoy sound self-esteem, to be free to develop meaningful, long-term relationships, to be empathic, compassionate, and conscientious. Empathic. You're able to feel what other people feel. Wasn't that something that Jesus was able to do? Because Jesus was able to feel what other people felt, they sensed that he knew them. And they felt comfortable. 
And when they felt comfortable, now they're able to learn. Now they're able to change because its defenses are down. When the defenses are up because we don't feel that way, no learning can take place. Empathy is absolutely essential to to soul winning. You have to feel empathy. And people know whether you are connected with them. They know it right away. Children know it as soon as they see you. They know if you have that ability. If there's something inside you that resonates inside them, that you care. And Jesus, everywhere he went, he had that ability and he showed it, demonstrated it, and people's lives were changed as a result of that. I'm simply saying that we as Christians have spent too much time delivering doctrine and very little time preparing hearts, including our own hearts. We would be far more effective in evangelism if we would do more of this kind of thing. We need to fix the damage so that we can go out and have something that people can see that would be a benefit. Empathic, compassionate, and conscientious. That's what attachment brings. And you can behave well and enjoy academic and professional success if you are attached. Secure attachment is related to, listen to this, more self-disclosure. Because you are securely attached, you can reveal who you are easier. You you do that better. Children just have no trouble talking about who they are if they're secure. If you are securely attached, you have more uh, reliance on one another and more physical intimacy. You know what? I said this already, but if the attachment is not there, which simply means that the parent is using the child for the parent's gains. I see this all the time. Children somehow act up and the parent just jumps all over the child. The behavior of the child did not deserve the response of the parent. It just simply was not appropriate. The parent was using the child to, to satisfy them. The child existed for the satisfaction of the parent. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And so when you have those kind of situations that take place, intimacy is blocked out. There can be no intimacy. How can we become one with someone if there is no intimacy? Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer? I pray, he said to the Father, that they will become one even as we are one. You know, Jesus, in his working with people, he did far more of this kind of connection stuff, this kind of love stuff, than, than we do, and far less of the doctrine indoctrination than we do. And he had far more success. We need to change the ways. Attachment causes a child to feel understood, empowered, to communicate and be connected with those they love, to never feel how vulnerable or helpless they are. Rather, they are assured of comfort, strength, protection, all things necessary to growth, and to feel attuned, a sense of belonging, like, I'm a part of a we. I'm a part of a group. I feel safe in this group. Attachment doesn't happen... When it doesn't happen, there are certain reasons for it. 
that when the child is unsure if the parent, uh, when the parent returns after the attachment, you know, they put, they put a, a ch- children and parents together and they take the parent away and then they'll see what happens to the child and they bring the parent back and see what the child does with the parent. Well, if the child is unsure, if the parent will return or that the parent might reject them when they return, and what's that a sign of? The parent simply is not thinking about the child. They're only thinking about themselves. If they fear that, here's what happens to the child. The child feels uncomfortable with emotions. They attempt to be cool, controlled, and ambitious. That was me growing up. They tend to avoid conflict. Passive-aggressive is the only way they relate, or sarcastic and they avoid relying on anyone, fear being weak. You just insulate yourself against being vulnerable. That's what you do. You put all of these things in place. I have been a Seventh-day Adventist pastor for years and years and years. Rarely, if ever, do I ever hear disclosure of anything intimate in pastor's meetings. They simply don't know how to do it. They don't know how to have a church that does it. They probably don't have it in their home. It just doesn't exist. There's some kind of an avoidance going on. Another thing that would happen if attachment doesn't take place is ambivalence. Now this is the parent's narcissistic needs domineer the parent-child relationship. In other words, this relationship exists for the parents. You know, my needs always trump the child's needs. Now, in an attachment, the child's needs do trump. But in this, it's the parent's needs that trump. When that happens, the child starts talking nonstop in a disorganized way. They lack boundaries. They become preoccupied, pressured, hard to focus on what's happening now become bossy, controlling, dislike rules, authority. They sabotage what they like. What they, excuse me, they sabotage the very things that they want to do. All of us have met those kind of people. And it's because of the lack of someone to love them. How do you correct a problem when you run into people that have been raised without attachment, without love, and they have these built-in problems? How do you correct it? Do you teach them truth? You teach them doctrine. What do you have to do to correct it? You have to love them with what kind of love? Unconditional love. And usually it takes quite a while before they feel it. They need to be loved that way before that you can change the pattern. Another thing that happens when... Um, attachment doesn't happen, is that uh, a child will become anxious. And that is, they have been accustomed to the parent either abandoning them or to intruding too closely into them. You know, totally leaving them or getting too engaged with the child, too involved in the child, controlling the child. And so the child gets anxious on either one of those kind of behaviors. And this causes the child to develop a fragmented self, to not feel attuned or connected, to act out, be depressed, angry, to cling or angrily resist. When my child 
my oldest girl, was first handed to me. When we brought her home, I held her in my arms, and that little girl just started arching her back. And she knew how to get away. And she was using all the physical muscles necessary to say, I don't want to be in your arms. That has, this girl, wonderful as she is, has had the hardest time her entire life just relaxing and being loved. Difficult time. When did it start? Immediately. Just immediately. That's the way she came out. Just that way. Inconsolable. Moody. Hitting, kicking, throwing. Um... So these are the important things. One of the things that we're discovering is that uh, neuroscientists at various medical schools across the country are putting the pieces together today about love and the effect that it has. And they've studied, among other things, social isolation and the effect that isolation, remember the monkeys and so forth, the effect of that upon stress. And this is what they have discovered that or abnormally high levels of cortisol in both monkeys and children who were deprived of social support. If you don't feel connected, that goes up, cortisol. A cortisol attaches to cell receptors, receptors. It changes the function of the cell. So when it becomes attached to the cell, when there's too much cortisol in the system, it attaches to the cell and it changes the function of the cell. And it changes it from growth to defending. So what happens is when you have social isolation, now we're beginning to understand what happens physiologically, is that social isolation changes the chemistry in the body and the chemistry basically moves from growth to defense. In other words, the body becomes conditioned and programmed to go a certain direction. You can't grow, you can't be nourished, all of that shuts down. Instead, what happens is you are defending against attack coming. And you always are aware and weary that wary that it's going to happen. And the brain completely disregards everything else as though it didn't even happen and focuses totally. All the input is pushed out of the picture except just the issues about protecting against the threat, even if the threat isn't real. That's what happens. Physiology changes. Uh, another neuroscientist, uh, James Prescott, he said that abnormal social behaviors are characteristic of maternal deprivation are side effects of brain damage and the lack of physical contact. And he talks about what happens in the part of the brain where that takes place. And he says it changes the whole physiology on pleasure, bonding, and love, affecting intimacy, affection, and trust. Love is essential. Let me ask you some questions right now. This is implications. Would securely attached people find it easier to love God? No. Securely attached people? No. Hmm. Do you agree with that? 
Insecurely attached people are defensive. Securely attached people, I think they would find it easier. I want to hear what you have to say, but yeah. But uh, would securely attached people find it easier to obey God? Yeah. Would insecurely attached people find it more difficult to love God? You remember what happens with insecurely attached people? It creates a reaction that drives them, that goes into play no matter what is happening. And so, would insecurely attached people find it more difficult to obey God? Yeah, they would. Also because they've been conditioned not. To to obey God actually has to come from the heart, doesn't it? No, no, you're fine. You're fine. I think you're right. What effect should this information have upon the way the church conducts its ministry? Could it be possible that we have just thought that throwing out all of these truths would just somehow change people? Maybe we need to change the way we approach people. Maybe we need to change the way that we are and how we approach people. What changes would this bring about in the way we react to one another? And what does it say about um, what we should do as far as a church? I like this quote from Ellen White. She says, Love is the connecting link between your heart and the heart of Christ. It's the connecting link. Just like the attachment stuff, all of that research. It's interesting to me that as is true of all true research, it ends up coming back and validating biblical positions all the time. And now we are aware that how important it is to really have the kind of love. It is a love that is not domineering, that doesn't overpower the child. It is a love that is consistent, that is always there and cannot be somehow affected by the behavior of the child. It's always there. It is a love that um, is there to listen and yet the child has a chance to go and form their own way. They're free. They just have the security of knowing that there's someone there. And that's exactly what Jesus does. If you go to almost any other religion in the world, that's not the case. You know, it's the way Jesus functions and the way parents must function and the way churches must function. I think we need to be better lovers. And so in the last 20 years, I have had to go back and fix a lot of damage and try to learn how to be better at loving. And I'm telling my kids more and more now that how much I love them and my grandkids, telling my wife all the time. I even tell my mother-in-law once in a while. In in America, listen to these statistics. We've got some ways to go here. In America, American parents spend less time with their children than any other nation except England. In America. Russian fathers spend at least two hours a day with their children. Russian fathers. Two hours a day. In the U.S., fathers spend about 37 seconds a day on the average. 
And I'm wondering if they really are there during those 37 seconds for the child. How can you establish attachment on that basis? And I am convinced that they don't know how to do it. I think dads are getting better at it. I think dads are getting much better, and the statistics have got to be showing some change on that. But there's a lot of forces that are moving against this, a lot of pressure against it. French parents touch their children three times more often than U.S. parents. Men in the Middle East, Korea, China, and Indochina walk arm in arm or hold hands without any over undertones or overtones. There's just a more of a freedom to love. We've got the truth, but I'm not so sure we got the love. Jewish men are very tactile. They often embrace and kiss. Uh, Puerto Rican, no, I'm not suggesting, gentlemen, anyway. Puerto Rican couples might touch approximately 180 times in an hour. Wow. I asked my wife if she gets tired. I asked her yesterday, do you get tired of me telling you I love you? And she looked at me. We were going into Costco. And she looked at me and said, no, I love to hear it. And I said, yeah, I think I, I love to hear that too. You know, it just it feels good. French parents touch 110 times. Couples in Florida touch twice. Couples in London don't touch at all. Listen to this. There's something wrong in America. As immigrants become assimilated to U.S. society, you heard the quotes and the statistics about how loving and touching they were in their home country. When they come to the United States, what happens? They reduce the frequency with which they touch one another. They become like us. For example, one study found that newly arrived Italian immigrants might touch every 27 seconds. But after becoming assimilated into our culture, they touch only once every 40 seconds. Twice as much time between touch. Why do I say all of this? I think it's pretty obvious. I think that if churches really want, we're a church that believes that we want the Lord to come, we want to go home. And God is waiting for a people that can love like he did. Because when you can love the way that God loved, what happens? All the barriers get removed. Healing takes place. Health comes into the soul. And all the barriers now mean that people are open to hear. And the thing that will convince them more than anything else not even the doctrinal soundness. All of the emotional barriers are removed. And so they're just ready to hear. There's never been anything wrong with our doctrines. And so we can hold these evangelistic campaigns and people become convinced. And they join the church. They don't stay. There's something wrong. Love is the power to stay. It holds the power to stay. So we need to go and change. And the things we need to change are the way we are, loving towards each other and loving towards God. I'm going to close by going to a quote that I was supposed to go, and here it is. Whoops. Hello. 
No, come on. You know what? I should be fired. I just can't figure out how to make this thing work. Here we go. I was there a moment ago. Will it do it now? Come on the screen. Oh, it's coming. Here's the text. Take a look at it with me in your Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Sorry about all the technology mess-ups. Albert, we're going to have to figure out how to do this. We can get it working in the other churches. I don't know why here. And there's something wrong. My machine doesn't like your machine. <laughs> yeah, we can't live without it, though. 2 Timothy 1, 7. What does it say? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Yeah. My wife told me the other day that most of her life has been just overrun with fear. And this text is helping to correct that. She is now beginning to change her thoughts about love and as a result of that, she is feeling more power and more of a quietness coming to her mind as a result of that. And so she is not so much affected by what happens around her, but rather she is controlled by what goes on within, and it comes from love. And I just thought that was a beautiful thing to hear, and it's something that's wonderful that's been taking place. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And those are really powerful words in my mind. Thank you that we live in a time when we can also see the results of that love when it is given so freely and when it is also not given so freely and the damage that it can do when that happens. We see now the truth staring us in our face. And you have asked us to go out and be that loving church, loving husband, loving wife, loving parent. To give that love that we have been the recipient of away to others. May we spend more time pondering. May our hearts be open to be changed by your love. So that we can do that better. And prepare the way for people to actually hear and listen and be changed. May each one of our churches that were represented here today, as well as the churches around the world, really be known as loving, loving churches above all else. Now, Lord, when we go back to our homes and our places of business, to our friendships, somehow enable us to be more quiet and to be more giving and to be there available for others and not think so much about ourselves but be there for others so that they can feel the love that they need to feel in order to be well and grow and prosper. Help us to do that better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.